Welcome to the Yellow Balloons podcast, a collection of teachings to help you navigate the transformational possibilities of a God-centered perspective. We pray these insights from Scripture will inspire and encourage you. In this episode, we begin chapter 7 of the book of Daniel, moving beyond the historical account of his life and into his prophetic message. We start by examining the structure of the book and the nature of its prophecies. The focus in chapter 7 is on Daniel's dream and the four beasts. Using similar images to the book of Revelation, Daniel's ultimate message is the same. A call to worship, to live a life of faith, and be a faithful witness to the gospel of God. Let me pray for us and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. And please be with us today as we continue to worship you in the book of Daniel, to learn more about Daniel and being a faithful witness, and to remember that you're in control, God. Give us ears to hear, and please help us to be closer to you today as we learn more about you and your son. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're in chapter 7 of Daniel today. This gets a little more difficult because we're talking about prophecy. Today we're going to look at a lot of the structure of the book of Daniel. So we're going to see how Daniel is laid out a little bit differently. We haven't really talked about this before. So before we dive in, we're going to just do a little quick review. We're going to look at the structure of the book of Daniel. And then we're even going to break it down into structures within chapter 7 of Daniel. If you'll recall, in 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, he's the, the king of the Babylonians. He comes in to Judah and kind of takes over. And he takes uh, Daniel and, and a few of his friends hostage along with thousands of other people. So the first six chapters of Daniel, you see this powerful story unfold where Daniel and his three friends are taken into Babylonian captivity and Daniel is interpreting dreams and having prophecies and things like that. We see this in 1 through 6 and 7 through 12 is going to be a lot of these prophecies as they unfold. So there's a lot of neat design in the way that Daniel is laid out. It's going to really help us understand the structure of the book as we look at it, even in the book's language. Chapter 1 is written in Hebrew, so you're going to see the structure just in how this book is laid out in language is really helpful to help us understand how it's all put together and why it's put together the way it is. So we, we see chapter 1 written in Hebrew. Chapters 2 through 7 are written in Aramaic. And Aramaic is another ancient language, very common in, in biblical times, related to Hebrew. And then in chapters 8 through 12, we switch back to Hebrew. And there's a, there's a reason for all that. What we can interpret from this is hey, chapters 2 through 7 are a coherent structure placed together that way, written in one language for a reason, and then 8 through 12 is very similar. They are separate. But there's also some other neat symmetry that we can see with how Daniel's laid out. And we can see in chapter 1 that's written in Hebrew is all about Daniel and his three friends, right? They're very young and they're recruited, uh, if you recall, to work in the palace under Nebuchadnezzar. They're pressured to give up their beliefs as they're they're renamed after the pagan gods of Babylon. They're pressured to eat these foods that are outside their religious practices. But they don't give up. They don't give in. They stay committed and they stay faithful. And because of this, they end up being elevated by the king. Next, in chapter 2, which is now switching to the Aramaic portion, this also has a really cool symmetrical design. First, we have the king of Babylon... Nebuchadnezzar, he's having a dream and he needs it interpreted. If you'll recall, only Daniel knows how to interpret that dream. And the dream is of that statue. And the statue is made up of four different types of metals that talks about the sequence of how these empires are going to come into play. And then finally, after he sees the statue, that huge rock comes in and, and crushes the statue. And it just destroys it. And Daniel says the dream is a sequence of human kingdoms after Babylon that will bring violence to the world 
and that the final kingdom, God's kingdom, will come and humble these others and heal the world with God's justice. Well, chapter 3 tells a story of Daniel's three friends who refused to bow down to the king or, or worship that statue that Nebuchadnezzar builds, and they're thrown in the fiery furnace where God delivers them from death, and they're exalted again by the king, who actually recognizes that God is the God above all gods through this particular trial that his three friends went through. So again, a story of faithfulness. The next chapters, 4 and 5, give us a pair of stories about the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, and Belshazzar, who are both filled with pride, right? They're in a position of great authority, and they kind of really egotistical, self-centric, as you can imagine you would be when you get to be the, the king over most of the world. All this imperial power that they have, but God steps in and warns them. And just like in chapter 2, only Daniel can interpret these dreams that they have. And he says that both kings are supposed to humble themselves before God. Of course, they, they refuse. Nebuchadnezzar, of course, he loses his mind. He's turned into a beast, essentially. And then after a while, he humbles himself. And he's brought back into power. And he recognizes that God is the one true God. Belshazzar refuses to humble himself before God, doesn't recover from that, and he's killed that very night. Well, chapter 6 is the pair chapter to chapter 3. So you can kind of see how chapters 2 and 7 are going to talk about dreams. 3 and 6 are stories of faithfulness with the fiery furnace and the lion's den. And then 4 and 5 are pair chapters. We have Nebuchadnezzar's pride and Belshazzar's pride, which are going to cause them to fall. So chapter 6, being the pair to chapter 3, is where Daniel refuses to worship the king. Remember last week we, we talked a lot about this. They kind of trick Darius into saying, hey, make a law and everybody has to worship you for the next 30 days. And if they refuse, they should be killed. So the satraps trick him into writing that law. And because of the law of the Persians at the time, he can't go back on his own law. So this all happens because of Daniel's honesty. Remember, he's one of the three guys who are out there collecting taxes. And he's collecting more taxes than everyone else. Well, he's not really collecting more. He's giving it over to the king, where the other guys are kind of skimming off the top. So Darius decides, hey, maybe I'll put Daniel in charge of all of this activity. And the other guys don't like that, because if Daniel's put in charge, who's going to get the money? The king will. They won't be able to have their own summer lake houses and things like that. Maybe jet skis and all the other things that they want to have. And instead, what they do is they throw Daniel under the bus. They, they get King Darius to write this law, and he can't go back on his law. So they throw Daniel into the lion's den. And we saw that even though these folks conspired against Daniel, the tables get turned on him. Because the angel steps in and seals the mouths of the lions for the time that Daniel's in there. And Daniel's brought out. And them and their families are thrown in. So Daniel, again, this is a, chapter 6 is another story of faith. So we can see chapter 1 is all about Daniel and his three friends being recruited. Then you've got 2 and 7 paired together talking about dreams. 1 is Daniel's, uh, a dream that Daniel interprets for Nebuchadnezzar. And 7 is the dream that's going to, we're going to talk about today, which is about prophecy. Three and six are stories of faith, faithfulness, paired together with the fiery furnace and the lion's den. And then four and five, stories of pride and man's fall because of putting pride before God. So chapter seven is the pair to chapter two. We have another dream, but this time it's to Daniel and Daniel alone. And what we're going to see is Daniel has this dream 
it's going to cause a lot of turmoil for him. He's going to really be upset trying to interpret prophecy. He even has trouble, even though he's seeing this dream and it's taking place in front of him, he has trouble interpreting it himself. He's so scared and it's just so overwhelming that it takes an angelic messenger to actually step in at the end of chapter 7 and interpret this dream for him. As we look at 1, 3, and 6, it's kind of stories of faithfulness despite persecution meant to have us have hope and be faithful witnesses. Four and five are about human kingdoms rebelling against God and becoming like beasts, as seen literally in Nebuchadnezzar's instance. Chapters two and seven are about dreams that encourage patience, and God's people are to wait for him to bring his kingdom to the world and vindicate his suffering people. So that leads to the question, when will all of this happen? Well, this is what the final chapters of Daniel are all about, the when and how this is all going to take place. We're not going to get a clear answer on any of this, but we will get a clear understanding of one thing, and that's God's in control. He's got this. We're not going to be able to interpret this down to exactly what's going to happen and what minute it's going to happen. That's not meant for us to do, but we will get the understanding that God has got all of this. He's in control. So we're going to look at Daniel chapter 7, if you want to turn there. And we're going to talk about this in two major divisions. The first half is going to be the dream that Daniel has, which is verses 1 through 14. And the second half is going to be about the interpretation of the dream, which is 15 through 28. We're going to look at that in more detail. So the first half, 1 through 14 here, we're going to break that down. 1 through 8 are going to be the four beasts. 9 through 12, the ancient of days. And 13 and 14, the Son of Man. So this is the first prophecy in the book revealed directly to Daniel. The other prophecies were revealed to King Nebuchadnezzar, but they were interpreted by Daniel. So this is the first one that he gets. So let's look at Daniel chapter 7, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream telling the main facts. So where we are historically, remember last time chapter 6 was about Darius. Well, Darius comes after Belshazzar, so uh, Daniel's not necessarily written sequentially. It's not written in order. We're jumping back now to the time of Belshazzar. So it's the first year of Belshazzar. And Belshazzar is Nebuchadnezzar's son or maybe grandson. So you got Nebuchadnezzar, then he moves on, he dies, and then Belshazzar takes over, following him in lineage, and then Darius comes after that. So, not to be confused, chapter 6 is about Darius. The lion's den happens after this event in chapter 7. So, chapter 7, verse 2. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. The four winds of heaven. The four winds of heaven are creating a raging storm on, on the sea. This means that the following events that he's going to talk about are ordained by God. And if you remember from our study in Revelations, this might look familiar to you because if you look at Revelations chapter 7, verse 1, it says, After these things I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the tree, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. So God pauses the four winds while he selects the 144,000 and sets the seals. In Daniel, the four winds stir up the sea or the nations, out of which arise four beasts. And we're going to talk about the four beasts. When we think about these winds and the turmoil, perhaps it's God, he deals in order, and the earth deals in chaos. 
All right, three. Now we're going to get into the four beasts here. Seven, verse three. And four beasts, four great beasts, came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. So generally it's agreed that this beast represents the Babylonian Empire and King Nebuchadnezzar in particular. The description uh, certainly fits here with what Nebuchadnezzar, you know, his plunge from power and how all that took place and his loss of sanity in chapter 4 where his wings are plucked off as we see here in the vision. Later, Nebuchadnezzar is brought back and reinstated into power. He's turned back from beast into man. So while God tells neither Daniel nor us that it's, the beast represents Nebuchadnezzar, he does reveal the head of gold in the vision in chapter 2 that he said does represent Nebuchadnezzar. We see that in chapter 2, 36 through 38. Since the head of gold seems to describe the same king and kingdom as the first beast, it may not be too far afield to conclude that Nebuchadnezzar is the king represented by the first beast. So the first empire is the Babylonian Empire, the coming of that the lion with wings like an eagle. Also, in many places in the Old Testament, Babylon is symbolized as both a lion and an eagle. You see those representations all over the place. So by far, when you look at this, the first beast that we're talking about here is the best of a bad bunch. He's more beastly in the beginning and more human towards the end, paralleling the character of Nebuchadnezzar. This also underscores that these four kingdoms go from reasonably good to unbelievably bad. The only human things mentioned of the, of the fourth beast that we're going to talk about are his eyes and his mouth. His mouth is used to speak boastfully. So as, as you see this, the first beast is more human-like, and as we go two, three, and four, it's going to get worse and worse. So chapter 7, verse 5, And suddenly another beast, a second, like a bear, it was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. This is that kingdom of the Medo-Persians. And we, know, we saw this in chapter 6 when Darius takes over. And we know this because in chapter 8, Daniel has another vision. And we'll see this next week when we talk about it in more detail. But just to give you some context of where we're getting the idea here, Daniel chapter 8 has this vision of the kingdom is described differently, but it's stated that it's the Medo-Persians will be the second kingdom. If you look at chapter 8, verse 18, he says, Now, as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep, with my face to the ground. But he touched me and stood me upright. And he said, Look, I'm making known to you what will happen in the latter time of the indignation. For at the appointed time, the end shall be. The ram, which you saw, having the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. And this is the second kingdom that he's talking about. So we can tie that back and say the kingdom that he's talking about with this bear is the Medio Persians. We can even look at this, uh, some of the symbolism when you're looking at this bear. We see this bear or parts of this bear again in Revelations. So if you look at Revelations 13, verse 2, it says, Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. So the feet of a bear, perhaps a foundation of laws that they represent. So we see the laws of the Medes and the Persians could not be broken. Perhaps the feet represent the organization of the Persian government structure. They were known for their bureaucracy, right? So we saw this in chapter 6. Remember, Darius couldn't take back the law that he wrote about worshiping him for 30 days. So if you, if you worship, didn't worship him for 30 days, then you're thrown in the lion's den. So he couldn't even take that back, even though he was the one making the law. So this, this really thick red tape bureaucracy thing they had going on, perhaps that's what the bear 
represents there. Back to Daniel 7, verse 6. After this, I looked, and there was another, like a leopard, which on its back had four wings. The beast also had four heads, and the dominion was given over it. So the third beast is meant to represent the Grecian Empire founded by Alexander the Great. So he's the next one in history. So you've got the Babylonians, then you've got the Medo-Persians, and now you've got Alexander the Great and the Grecian Empire. So we know from this from history, but also from Daniel 8.20 again, he's going to talk about the goat and the ram where he's referencing Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great and the Greeks, they're going to rule from 331 to 31 BC for approximately 300 years. The symbolism here with the leopard is very appropriate for Alexander the Great because as we discussed last week, they rolled through kingdoms very, very quickly. Nobody really put up a fight for him. He kind of moved through the land and pulled up to the city and said, uh, Hey, throw out the heads of your rulers and we'll replace them with other people who will provide security and, by the way, lower your taxes. Aha! Or we'll come in and murder you all. Your choice. Well, usually the heads of the rulers came out and they would just take over and keep moving. So now think of this leopard, right? This great leopard, how quickly a leopard moves. So kind of neat to think of how fast Alexander the Great's armies moved through the land, but now throw wings on its back. And I'd like to see a gazelle escape that on National Geographic Channel. You know, just imagine how fast that, uh, their armies moved with lightning speed. So again, they pull up, give the ultimatum, throw out the heads of your rulers, or we're going to come in and kill you all. It's a pretty good business model for Alexander and company. They pull up and take right over. No big deal. No loss of life. So looking back at Daniel 1 through 6, you have the great kings who gained very large empires through extreme military might and decisive victories. Yet their kingdoms, they're only temporary, each rose and then they fell. So we'll continue on. Verse 7, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a beast dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there, in this horn, were eyes, like the eyes of a man, and a mouth, speaking pompous words. So we saw the first beast, kind of, uh, we could see Nebuchadnezzar in that beast, um, given the heart of a man, the mind of a man again. So we saw a little bit of a man there. The second is just a beast. The third is even a bigger and badder beast. And now this beast, the only thing human-like about it, are the way his mouth is speaking these pompous words, speaking blasphemy. So the fourth beast is different than the other ones mentioned. Like the others, it symbolizes a vast and powerful empire on earth. Yet it's different. It has ten horns and still another small horn. This beast corresponds with the statue of Nebuchadnezzar that we saw in chapter 2 in his dream, but it represents the Roman Empire. You can see the iron teeth corresponds with the legs of iron on that statue in chapter 2. Alexander conquered by the rapidity of his troops moving so quickly through the land, where Rome conquered by ruthless crushing of other people. It devoured and crushed, and anything that was left trampled with its feet. And that's how Rome did it. They would move in and just kind of take over and just crush anything that resisted against them. So we see the, a beast similar to this again in Revelations 13.1. Revelations chapter 13 verse 1 says, Then stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. So the Roman Empire went from 31 B.C. until today. We are still Romans. That's what we're kind of trying to 
portray here, help you understand. What's changed since then? Our road systems, they're still Roman, still the same kind of structure, still Roman-based designs. Even our water and sewer systems are very similar to what they put in place. Our culture is predominantly the same as the Roman culture. Our government is like theirs. We both had legislative, executive, and judicial branches with a system of checks and balances. Both have social packages to help the poor through taxation of other people to help the citizens. We have football stadiums. They had gladiator coliseums, but pretty much the same thing. There have been some pretty major changes since the fall of ancient Rome, but essentially we're still Rome. We notice here also this little horn is not an animal, but a man speaking pompous words. This will happen during this Roman Empire. The person will be a powerful person, as in the Bible, a horn usually used to represent someone very powerful or a powerful kingdom. So we kind of get the sense that this fourth kingdom, being Rome, is going to last a long time, obviously, as it has. The fall of ancient Rome, and now you might want to call us New Rome, but essentially it's the same thing. This has been going on for a while. This teaching will continue in the following episode. Thanks for listening to the Yellow Balloons podcast. If you want more information on adopting a God-centered perspective, visit our website at yellowballoons.net. And if you have any questions related to what you just heard, we would love to hear from you. Please email us at contact at yellowballoons.net. Thanks for listening. 